Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 359 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 16, lunar orbit, and a no-go for landing. With Apollo 16 now in the vicinity of the moon the crew began to prepare for the LOI, or Lunar Orbit Insertion Burn. But before this could happen, they had to expose some experiments, which Ken Mattingly would be performing during lunar orbit. These experiments were stored inside the service module in an area called the SIM Bay, which stood for Scientific Instrument Module Bay. Casper shuddered as they jettisoned the Simbay door. It was quite a sight as the sun reflected off the door while it tumbled away into space. With that completed, at about 74 hours into the mission, Apollo 16 moved into position to make their burn into orbit around the moon. In order to enter lunar orbit, it was necessary to slow down the spacecraft. If they did not decelerate, the gravity of the moon would slingshot the crew back towards Earth. So, it needed to be a retrograde burn for 6 minutes 15 seconds to slow the spacecraft down to attain lunar orbit insertion. The spacecraft was now positioned in such a manner that when the engine was ignited, their velocity would decrease in the correct direction to put them in the appropriate orbit. The objective was to achieve an elliptical orbit around the moon that was 60 by 170 nautical miles. This meant 60 miles at its low point or perigee and 170 at its apogee or high point. As the crew accelerated toward LOI, they observed their first lunar sunset. Unlike on Earth, where the sunset is usually beautiful, gold, and orange colors, in lunar orbit, the sun simply disappeared. They were now in darkness, racing toward a huge object they could not see. As usual, the burn would occur on the far side of the moon, so Apollo 16 would be out of contact with mission control. There had to be complete trust 
the tracking network put them in the correct trajectory. A trajectory error of only 0.025% would cause them to crash into the backside of the moon. 16, you're go for LOI. For the past hour, the crew had grown quieter and quieter as the tension began to mount. This was a big maneuver. If they blew it, the mission was lost and possibly their lives. Charlie Duke said he wasn't scared, but he felt tight, like he was a loaded spring. 16, we're a couple minutes from LOS. See you on the next pad. Now they were on their own, out of contact with Houston, as the Earth slid behind the moon, and only minutes from LOI. Finally, ignition. 20,000 pounds of thrust in the service module engine roared to life, and they decelerated into lunar orbit. Those six minutes seemed like an eternity as the crew monitored the spacecraft performance. Charlie was glued to the engine and electrical system gauges, while John watched the computer and Ken eyed the flight instruments. Then, shut down. The computer issued the command right on schedule. They had indication of a perfect orbit, and Ken, John, and Charlie sighed with relief. Apollo 16 had just become the heaviest object ever placed in lunar orbit, over 100,000 pounds. Ken had done a great job on the SPS firing. Breaking Apollo 16 down to a speed that allowed the moon's gravity to trap the spacecraft and reel it into orbit. Specifically, they had made a 2,700 feet per second retrograde maneuver that put them down to an altitude that ranged from 170 to 58 nautical miles. Though Casper and Orion were in lunar orbit, Houston couldn't be sure until they swung around the backside of the moon and regained communication. It took another 15 minutes to do that. Hello, Houston. Uh, Sweet 16 has arrived. Roger 16, copy loud and clear. Okay, uh, Pete, uh, super double fantastic burn. Uh, if you're ready, I'll give you a burn status report. Okay, go ahead, John. From the lower altitudes of the parking orbit, the views of the lunar surface, and of their landing site were spectacular. And uh, as you can see, we're at 170.4 by 58.3, according to the old computer. And that baby just rifled it right down the line. Ready? And everybody's looking out the window. And right now, we're looking right down at uh, Crater King. And it's just as fantastic as it always has been. Roger. You can see those little dark, uh, those little dark, look like volcanic uh, black spots uh, up, up in the north sector of it. And you can see the central peaks with a, with a very, uh, very white, 
Central Peaks covered by uh, lighter uh, gray, gray brown uh, material. It sort of looked like somebody painted it on there with a uh, with a with a paintbrush. Then everyone's geology training kicked in as they described their view of the lunar surface. Uh, Pete, looking out uh, at the horizon, you can really tell uh, you're in the islands. Uh, the uh, horizon is really jagged looking. Looks like coming up on the Rockies, huh? Of course, we're, start, we're starting to come up over the flatlands now, over the Smith Sea. I remember a landmark track down there on Apollo 10 is still there. And you can't really tell by looking at it that the Smith Sea has any, any deeper or lower as the data shows it is right. in the surrounding terrain. Roger. The submerged craters in Smithy uh, remind me a lot of uh, Carl Atoll's. They just got the uh, ridges sticking up, you know, and the, and the bottoms up, up here to be flooded with the same uh, material that's in the smith. We're digging out a map now, 16, to take a look at. We're going to get a close-in picture of Humboldt here as we come up, because uh, we probably miss it on the next round. Roger. That's real, it's really a fascinating crater, the way the... Uh, Dark Mari has got uh, in the sort of like uh, paths around the edges, and, and there's a, a fracture pattern uh, running across it, and it has some uh, very uh, prominent central peaks that are very white, but it has every uh, contrasted color on the moon. Roger. Boy, those uh, fracture patterns running down through it are, are white. Uh, appear to be white uh, layered fracture patterns. They look like somebody drawn them on there with a piece of chalk. A few minutes earlier, John had asked how the S-4B looked. Recall that three days earlier, when they separated from the third stage of the Saturn rocket, it was placed on trajectory to impact the front side of the moon to act as a calibrated seismic impact experiment. This meant that when the S-4B hit the moon, it would register on the seismic experiments already in place and would give them precise data to calibrate further meteorite impacts. The impact was scheduled for nine minutes from the present time. The crew was relieved that it was going to hit on the southwest corner of Reinhold which was a long way from them. And it did impact on schedule, but the crew could not see it. Nevertheless, John, Ken, and Charlie continued floating from window to window describing everything they saw to Houston. During the astronauts' training, they had worked with the lunar geologist Farouk El-Baz. He had given the crew photographs of their orbital track across the moon and they had studied them for hours. Now, the astronauts were really excited and so talkative because they were seeing features that they recognized from those maps that they had studied so hard. A little more than an hour after first achieving lunar orbit, it was time to make a second, very precise firing of the SPS engine. 
At the end of the second revolution, Apollo 16 had to reduce its orbit from 170 miles over the landing site to 8 to 10 miles. This was called the DOI, or Descent Orbit Initiation Burn. This was a very sensitive maneuver, and like the LOI burn, the crew gave their full attention to the task at hand. Once again, it was to be performed on the backside of the moon while Apollo 16 was out of radio contact with Houston. The burn was to last just 24 seconds. The problem was that if it lasted 26 seconds, just two seconds longer, the orbit would be lowered too much and they would impact the moon. So the burn time had to be very accurate and the performance of the engine was extremely critical. As they approached this maneuver, the crew double-checked everything. Charlie had a stopwatch, John had a stopwatch, the computer had a clock, and there was also a digital clock in the spacecraft. Each of them were ready to manually shut the engine down should it burn over the allotted time. 16 Houston, we're about two minutes from LOS. Roger, two minutes from LOS. LOS began and everyone became very tense. They wanted to make sure this thing worked exactly right since there would be no monitoring from mission control. Outside the spacecraft, it was total darkness, which only increased the drama they were feeling. Then the burn started, right on schedule. As the computer sent the ignition signal, at 20 seconds, Charlie began counting. 20. 21, 22. If he had said 25 and the engine had not shut down automatically, Ken was going to stop it manually. They were only going to let it burn one second over. Charlie continued. 23, 24. Shut down. Fantastic. It shut down on schedule, and the computer said they were now in an orbit of 10.9 by 59 miles. But they had to verify that. There was no way to know for sure. They couldn't tell just by looking out the window. If there was a computer error or a sensing error, and the engine actually overburned and lowered their orbit, they could still impact the moon. Therefore, for verification, the plan was to put the spacecraft in bail-out burn attitude and wait for acquisition of signal from Houston. The resumption of radio contact was one way to confirm their orbit. The astronauts knew what time they were supposed to reacquire signal, and any deviation in orbit would change that acquisition time. If they were late, it meant they had overburned and could be headed for impact. Also, Houston was prepared to track Apollo 16 for a few minutes to verify the orbit. It would not be precise, 
But it would be enough to say, yes, your go or no, your impact, bail out. Thankfully, right on time, Apollo 16 had acquisition of signal. Now the orbit was confirmed by two means. The crew waited for Houston to confirm what their computer was saying. Apollo 16, Houston, you're good on the short arc. You have a stay, and we show you 59 by 10.7. They had made it. No bailout necessary. The elliptical orbit was almost perfect. They all breathed a sigh of relief and began looking out the windows again. Okay, uh, Henry, it feels like if we had, uh, we're clipping the tops of the trees off here, what it looks like. Charlie agreed. He couldn't believe how close they were to the ground. They were rocketing across the surface at about 3,000 miles per hour with mountains and valleys whizzing by. The mountain peaks and craters went by so fast, Charlie said it gave him the same impression as looking out a car window at fence post while traveling 70 miles per hour. Next, the astronauts ate their dinner and prepared for bed because tomorrow was landing day. Charlie continued to worry about his suit fitting, but NASA did not. As they said, Dave Scott had the same problem, but the suit went on easier on the surface with one-sixth gravity. With that, Charlie took a sleeping pill and tried to get some sleep, thus ending Day 4. Day 5, April 20th, 1972. Apollo Control, Houston, uh, at 91 hours, uh, 24 minutes into the mission. Uh, we're standing by now, uh, waiting a wake-up call by Capcom, uh, Don Peterson, to the crew of Apollo 16. Apollo 16, Houston. Apollo 16, Houston. Are you down there this morning, Houston? Just fine. How are you, 16? Charging hard. The crew was already up and working by the time the wake-up call came on landing day, which was expected to last for 22 hours. The plan was to land and then almost immediately do a full EVA, which would last six to seven hours. To get all that done, the crew couldn't afford many delays, so they worked hard to get ahead of schedule. That turned out to be a good thing. But their next instructions from Capcom helped initiate one irritating problem. Okay, the first one is, uh, based on our evaluation, your uh, potassium levels are running a little low. And we'd like to recommend that you drink some orange juice this morning. Also, you've uh, got a long day ahead of you, so we'd like to recommend that you eat a bit more food. That specially prepared orange juice was to create minor but continuous gastrointestinal irritation for the crew the rest of the day. Immediately after eating and waste management, the crew began preparing for transfer to the lunar module. This is Apollo Control at 92 hours 15 minutes ground elapsed time and some 13 minutes 12 seconds until... Apollo 16, 
reappears from behind the moon in this 10th lunar orbit. Jerry Griffin's gold team of flight controllers settled in for the day's activities leading up to powered descent and lunar landing. Apollo 15 astronaut Jim Irwin was now Capcom. As Charlie began to don his suit, he was concerned, remembering the trouble he had experienced with his zipper the day before. First, he put on the liquid-cooled garment and urine collection device. Then, he left off the big diaper, which was the fecal containment system. Hoping less padding would help get his zipper closed. Charlie certainly didn't want to be the one to get them behind schedule. Now, without the diaper, the zipper closed easily, and Charlie was ready to go. They opened the hatch to the lunar module and began transferring items over to Orion, including such things as urine bags, scissors, pencils, drink bags, and their flight data file, which contained their checklist and maps. This is Apollo Control. Apollo 16 Commander John Young and Lunar Module Pilot Charlie Duke are running almost 40 minutes ahead of the flight plan. And as much as they've already donned their pressure suits and are in the Lunar Module, preparing to power it up. Climbing into the Lunar Module was like slipping into an old comfortable chair. Charlie felt right at home. To keep from floating around too much in zero gravity, John and Charlie attached themselves to the restraint system, which was two cables anchored to the floor. Then they began the power-up. While John and Charlie were busy in the limb, Ken was getting his suit on and closing the tunnel. It was an extremely busy time. John and Charlie had about four hours to power up, undock, check out, and activate systems to prepare the lunar module for descent. For about 45 minutes, things went well. Then, when Charlie began to power up their antenna for the primary communications link with Houston, the problems began. Charlie couldn't get the antenna to rotate left to right in the yaw axis and point toward Earth. This resulted in a poor communications lock on with the tracking network, and therefore they were not able to automatically uplink information into their computer. This was a major problem. Houston wasn't going to be able to uplink directly the state vector or any of the other critical numbers that the onboard computer would need to navigate down to their landing site. Instead, the personnel on the ground were going to have to read all those numbers up to them and they would have to key them in manually. Right now, Charlie had to copy down all this information and insert it into the computer by hand. It was very time-consuming and put the crew under quite a bit of stress because it had to be done before they lost radio contact with Houston again. Undocking was to occur on this revolution shortly after loss of signal. Houston began reading up five-digit numbers that Charlie copied and read back to Mission Control to make sure they were entering the right numbers. 
there were 35 five-digit numbers which had to be entered into the computer. And whenever a mistake was made, it was a complicated procedure to get back into the computer to make the correction. To complicate matters, John and Charlie could hear Houston clearly. But because of Orion's antenna failure, their voice link to mission control was scratchy and very weak. While Charlie was copying feverishly, John began to activate the reaction control system. The RCS was used to control their attitude in space. When John flipped the switch, there was a double failure in the pressurization system, and it looked like they were going to overpressurize and blow the relief valve. If that happened, they were in deep trouble and would have to scrub the flight. The lunar module had been powered up for only an hour and now had two major malfunctions. Charlie was really feeling the tension. So when he saw John open the interconnect, he yelled, No, don't do that. What followed was a big debate with each other and with Mission Control about what to do. It was the only argument they had on the flight. This is the worst jam I've ever been in, John exclaimed, Apollo 16 being his fourth flight. Unfortunately, this big debate occurred on a hot mic, so everyone could hear it. When John found out, he apologized. I think that uh, if we were on a hot mic when we were talking to each other, I want to apologize right now probably pretty interesting. Probably not if the comm was as bad as you said it was. It, it was good enough for us to understand you. We're afraid of that. They were unable to fix the RCS regulators, but through venting the pressure into the ascent fuel tank, they were able to save the mission. It was a difficult procedure because they had to be careful in the venting that they didn't pump all of the fuel out of the attitude control system. Now the problems caused by the inoperable steerable antenna were beginning to compound, and it greatly impacted the checkout and activation of the lunar module, but they pressed on. They had to hurry because they were only 30 minutes from loss of signal and only two orbits from their intended landing. Charlie continued entering the computer codes to complete the 52 alignments for undocking. They were really strapped for time. The stress level was beginning to increase exponentially. John and Charlie were still tense with one another and things were right at the breaking point. Mission Control continued having their problems with the noise level on the communications link, and they were getting frustrated. The flight director was pacing up and down, and everybody was getting a knot in the pit of their stomachs. Charlie kept looking at the clock and thinking, there is no way that we're going to get this done on sequence. But then, their training and experience seemed to overcome all the tenseness, and instead of breaking, 
they settled down and became very methodical and proceeded cautiously, point by point. And finally, things began to come back on track. Charlie now read off the reaction control system checklist to John. The undocking was to occur after loss of signal on the back side of the moon. John and Charlie were getting down to the wire. Just in time and on schedule, they released the docking latches. They had achieved undocking and defeated another crisis. On their next revolution, they would be heading down to land on the moon. After making a small separation burn from the command module, they turned so they could see Casper out their front windows. It was a beautiful sight, the spacecraft silhouetted against the lunar surface, rushing by beneath it. Soon after, they were back in contact with Houston. The trip across the near side went quickly, and soon Houston was saying goodbye again. And Orion, we're coming up on about two minutes to LOS. Roger, two minutes to LOS. See you around for PDI. Yeah, Jim, I saw the landing site as we passed over. We're not going to have any trouble recognizing it from the rays. The rays stand out beautifully. Very good. Glad to hear it. On the back side of the moon, the time arrived for Ken to make an orbit change. He was going to attempt a 60-mile circular orbit which would place him in the proper rendezvous path in case Charlie and John had to abort their descent. The lunar module was now about one mile behind him, and Casper looked like a little star. But then, during the burn preparations, suddenly Ken said, There's something wrong with the secondary control system in the engine. When I turn it on, it feels as though it is shaking the spacecraft to pieces. TVC number two, the steering system used to keep Casper oriented during the course of the burn, was unstable. Ken tried everything he knew to try to stop the oscillations, but nothing worked. He told John and Charlie, I be a sorry bird. It was a malfunction deep in the guts of the command and service module engine control system, something that Ken was in no way responsible for and could do nothing about. After their return, the cause of the failure was discovered to be a problem in the rate feedback loop within the secondary yaw servo system. Neither post-flight testing of the command module cables and connectors nor bench testing of the thrust vector servo assembly revealed any abnormalities. Analysis concluded that the failure must have occurred in the service module wiring or connectors interfering 
with the signals going to and from the gimbal of the motors. Of course, this problem really got Charlie and John's attention. That engine and control system were their ride home. John, as the commander of the mission, had to make a quick decision to continue or to abort the burn. Don't make the burn, he directed. We will delay that maneuver. At this point, the astronauts were sorely disappointed, for they knew that their landing would have to be postponed or perhaps even abandoned. This was a really serious problem. If thrust vector control was lost during a maneuver that Ken might need to make later with Casper to meet up with Orion on its flight back from the surface, the mothership could begin tumbling. The mission rule stated that in the face of such a possibility, the entire landing phase of the mission would have to be terminated and the astronauts would have to head home ASAP. Charlie and John would have to redock with Casper immediately, requiring maneuvers from both modules. Once docked, their trans-Earth injection maneuver would be performed while still docked to Orion to provide a backup engine to return to Earth just like Apollo 13 did. When the astronauts regained contact with Houston, Charlie reported, standing by. We want you to stay with the Omni and uh, we'll be requesting high bed rate, Charlie. Roger. And we're ready for high bed rate now. We copy no CERC. We copied no CERC. Okay, you have high bed rate. Okay, anticipate a wave off for uh, this one. We'll set you up for the next one. Okay. At this point, it looked as if they only had two chances to land, slim and none. Everyone was dejected. After looking over the situation for a while, Houston radioed back. Hello, Orion and Casper, uh, this is Houston. Roger, it looks like uh, we're not going to have a decision on this rev and... Uh, we do have the capability of spending about five revs in this configuration before we have to make that decision. We would like uh, you all to move in to a station keeping position, and you should be at the closest point of approach at about 100 hours, and we're recommending a CSM active to move into a position and to station keep, and we're going to run some simulations down here on this TVC problem, and we'll get back to you. Houston did not have a quick answer. Now, the crew was really depressed. After the heady exhilaration and excitement of the undocking and getting everything accomplished, another major problem had surfaced, this time in Ken's spacecraft. This was the worst problem yet. Because of this engine, it looked as though they were going to have to return to Earth. They had trained for two and a half years, 
come 240,000 miles and were within eight miles of their landing site. They could look down and see it. They were one hour away from their scheduled landing, and now they had this abort. All of that effort seemed to have been wasted. John and Charlie rendezvoused with Ken and began to fly in close formation, waiting for the decision. Time was against them. As the moon continued to revolve beneath them, their landing site was gradually moving out from under their orbit. If they didn't attempt to land within a few hours, then the desired landing spot would be out of range. On the next acquisition of signal, word from Capcom came again. A-16, this is Houston. We still do not have an answer, but people are working very feverishly. The NASA team, along with contractors and engineers all over the country, worked frantically studying every possibility available. Tests quickly got underway at MSC, at the North American plant in Downey, California, where the command and service module had been designed and built, at MIT's Draper Lab, and in Tullahoma, Tennessee, because this problem had to be solved quickly. The minutes dragged by as the astronauts waited. For the only time in the entire mission, Charlie prayed, Lord, let us land. Another revolution, another loss of signal, and another acquisition of signal. Now they were down to only two more revolutions before it would be too late to land regardless of whether they fixed it or not. Then, after four hours' wait, four hours after hearing, no circ, no circ, came this communication from Houston. Okay, and uh, you do have a go for another try here at the EDI on Rev 16. And I have some words on that problem with the TBC whenever you are ready to copy. The consensus from all the analysis on the ground, which was not unanimous, was that the CSM's problem was an open circuit, a broken wire somewhere in the control system. Tests and simulations that had been done as far back as Apollo 9 involving similar problems indicated that if the issue was in fact in the control circuit, a go could be given for separation and landing. Procedures could be radioed to Ken that would result in electrically driving the engine nozzle into position for the proper maneuver. And it could be locked in place with the drive clutch. Charlie and John were ecstatic, and Ken even more so. That was the word they had been hoping for. They had a go for landing on the next rev. Their hearts came alive. Their excitement returned. Charlie said it was like being called back from the dead.
Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 359 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 16, Lunar Orbit, and a No-Go for Landing. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released on March 18th. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 183 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Okay, had some afterthoughts on this episode. First of all, Mrs. SRH is back home and we are going to celebrate, finally, our 8th anniversary of this podcast. Woo! We began in February of 2013 and have made 359 episodes, which I never thought we would reach. Because I wasn't planning to go into such detail. I don't know what happened. It just seemed right to present the material this way. And also, when I began, I didn't know if the podcast would be a success or not. So it could have ended in a couple years as a failure. But instead, I've had a good time, and you've had a good time, and it is a success. Now, I've got Mrs. SRH with me, and I want to know if she has any comments on this 8th anniversary. Yes. Oh, my goodness. You know, it has been a great ride. I have learned so much. You know, when you do this kind of research, you find... You get so involved in it, and you find all these really cool and intriguing things that you want to share. And I think that's the hardest part sometimes is, uh, you know, deciding what to share and what is just too much. But, I, you know, the other part of it is I've enjoyed the traveling and visiting the landmarks and the museums related to the podcast. Um, you know, the, but probably the best part has been meeting some of the listeners you know, because we've shared that common interest, and they have just been just super kind and hospitable. That has probably been the best part. I would like to agree with Mrs. SRH. I will echo those comments. We've met so many nice people during our travels, and we've had a great time, and it's such an interesting subject to me. I've been interested all my life, so it's been a great time on the podcast. Now, we were going to celebrate anniversary number eight with the astronaut ice cream, but we are all out of that because <laughs> it's pretty good. We do have the traditional tang. So if you have got your tang ready, now's the time to go get it. We have prepared in advance about a half a glass of water each. For Mrs. SRH and me. And we, of course, have the tang. So I'm going to open her up. They're in plastic containers. We have plastic containers over here for a tang. Now, Mrs. SRH is going to go and dip out, get some tang in there. Oh, that's a big spoon there. Okay, she's got about half a glass. I don't know how much you want to put in there. Ooh, that's a, oh, you're going to have a real tangy. <laughs> All right, Mrs. SRH is loaded, I think, and stirring. You going to stir yours? 
Or you want me to put mine in? I think you should put yours in first. All right. I put mine in. I don't think I need... I mean, that's a that's not a regular old teaspoon. That's like a tablespoon there. I get a little bit more. All right. Let me stir it up a little bit here. Miss SRH returns the cap. Before it spills on the floor. And I'll stir up Mrs. SRH's glass too. All right. Where are we going to put the, the spoon? Just put it on the desk there. Kleenex. <laughs> I'll put a Kleenex. All right. Yeah, let's just clean it. A facial tissue to hold the spoon <laughs> so it right. doesn't get the desk sticky. Okay. To eight years of podcasting. Mm. Ah, delicious. How's yours? It's great. Is it too tangy? No, it's perfect. It looks uh, darker orange than mine. It does, but... Um, oh, wait. Yours is really dark. I think yours looks watered down. Mine really good. Let me try yours. <laughs> of course I would think that. Yep. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yours is definitely... <laughs> full of vitamin C? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's full of vitamin C. It's really good stuff. Okay, this concludes the Tang Ceremony. All right, now, for those of you not interested in the secret personal project, you may skip ahead now. Okay, for everyone else, for the past 20 months, my family has been working on this project I chose not to, re to reveal it to everyone because so many things could go wrong. Okay, here's the project. In 1972, Mrs. SRH's father bought a dilapidated old farm that he enjoyed as a hobby. He had a full-time job. He was a mechanical engineer. But uh, he would go out to the farm and enjoy that when he had time and do all sorts of things out there. Now, for you guys in the Midwest, this is a very small farm in comparison to what you're used to. Eventually, Mrs. SRH and her siblings inherited the farm. Now, it took about a year and a half to come to an arrangement with them to sell and trade their portions of the farm to us. Last December, we finally took 100% ownership of the farm. Now, why would we want a farm in the first place? We have lived in our home for 34 years, and we are comfortable. And we really didn't feel like going through all that work of moving to a new location, selling the house, and all the work that would have to be done at the farm because it, it was a mess. It really was. Well, here's the thing. Our daughters wanted us all to move out to the farm. Now, these daughters happen to have all five of my grandchildren. Now, if you are a grandparent, you know that is mighty strong motivation. <laughs> so we took a chance, and we bought the farm, so to speak. We gave each daughter some land to build their houses, and 
we all will share the farm together. One daughter is scheduled to start her house next month. Okay, now we had to sell our house so we could build a new one. So we have spent quite a bit of time and effort. That's one of the reasons I've been so busy is preparing the house to sell. And we took that time and that effort and it paid off. We were fortunate enough to get an offer before the house was even listed. So we are under contract now. We, that means that the house is not quite sold. It's, it's agreed, we've agreed upon a price and we have set a closing date of March 25th to handle all the financial part. But it's not sold yet and anything can happen between now and March 25th. But I do believe it's going to go through because we've had a lot of inspections we've had to prepare for and that's been a general pain as well. So, now, we're in the process of clearing out 34 years' worth of junk and moving the few items we are keeping into storage, plus deciding on a new house to build. Now, you may be asking yourself, where will we stay while the new house is being planned and built? <laughs> well, if you are a long-time listener, you have a pretty good idea where we're going to stay. If you're not, I will tell you, it's the camper. <laughs> we figure we may be staying in our little camper at the farm for a year, depending upon how things go with building a new house. Apparently, it is a stressful ordeal to build a house these days. Now, back to our house. The buyers want us out of this house by March 23rd so they can conduct what's called a final walkthrough where they look everything over and just make sure they really want to go through with this thing. So that's like, that's like we got to be moved out, but they still go through and look just to make sure everything's okay and they're going to go through with this thing. So here we are, all moved all our stuff, and we're in the camper and everything, and they can just take another walk through. Anyway, that's how I feel about that. <laughs> so there's the secret project. I will keep those interested updated. If you're not interested, don't worry about it. It's no big thing. All right, but what is the big thing now is the house sale going through. It's just a little. Now, I said just a little. I only mean a little. Like a moonshot. So many things can go wrong. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Over the last fortnight, we had several new contributions and increases. I'd like to thank David N. from Canada, who donated at the Orion level and earned a shooting star. Martin S. from Michigan donated at the Apollo level. Tugneel from Germany donated at the Soyuz level and earned a moon emoji. Greg H. from New Orleans donated at the Soyuz level and earned a moon emoji. Peter M. from Hollywood, Northern Ireland donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. 
Martin C. sent in another donation and moved to the Mercury level. Alan M. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Apollo level and earned a shooting star emoji. Matthew C. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level and Mark D. pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. Our Patreon donors are at 256. Our total donors for 2021 have reached 310, and our goal is to reach 500 by the end of 2021. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. The winner for this episode will get the choice of a space rocket history magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet, or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Charles Gray. Charles Gray, if you would email us, Mike at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference. We'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 310 of you who have contributed thus far in 2021. My sources for this episode were NASA, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Moonwalker by Charlie Duke, Forever Young by John Young, The Apollo 16 Flight Journal, The Apollo 16 Mission Report, Apollo 16 Timeline, The Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that is all I have for episode number 359. I will do my best to get 360 posted by March 18th. Things are going a little crazy around here, so it's possible it could be a little late. We'll just have to see. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.